Now we're turning to the book uh, of Hosea again. It's one of those books that's tucked away. Can I, can I just encourage you to bring a Bible with you and open the Bible because I want you to see that all that uh, I'm, I'm saying actually comes from the Word of God, and that's, that's so, uh, I think, valuable for us. So if you turn towards the end of the Old Testament after Psalms and then Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, so look for Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Those are big books, then the book of Daniel, then the book of Hosea. So Hosea uh, chapter 2, and we're beginning to read at verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And she put, uh, that she uh, put her whoredom, uh, her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her uh, way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, uh, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now." And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I shall punish her for the feast days of the beals when she burned offerings to them." and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal or my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of, heaven, of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in intimacy. I will 
betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say not my uh, to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Amen. I mean, oh God will always bless the reading of his own word. Sitting around the breakfast table, there's an obvious tension. The dad's sitting with his nose in the paper. The mum is making as much racket as she can. She bangs the cereal bowls on the table. She opens the drawer for the cutlery. Uh, with a bang. She takes the cutlery. She slams it on the table. Uh, the family know that they've had a row before, uh, the night before, and there's, there's tension in the air. When they're all seated, suddenly the father speaks, but he doesn't speak to his wife. He speaks to his child, Julia. And he says, Julia, can you ask your mother to pass the sugar? Julia, can you tell your father he's fat enough and he has to get off his backside and go and get the sugar for himself? Julia, could you please inform your mother the toast is burning? Julia, can you remind your father that I asked him to get that toaster fixed two weeks ago? Now, I used to think that kind of scenario where the parents communicated with each other through the children was the product of the imagination of the writers of a sitcom for television until I read in the paper of a couple that hadn't communicated directly for 13 years. The only communication they had was through the children. Their relationship had declined so much that they weren't on speaking terms, and they employed their children as kind of go-betweens. Now, you will remember from our last study and our first study in this prophecy of Isaiah that Israel had played fast and loose with God. She had been unfaithful to him, and just as Hosea's wife gave herself to other lovers, so Israel was involved in a major love affair with the cult of Baal. And so far had God's relationship declined that Israel and God were no longer on speaking terms. So verse 2 reads, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. God was not on speaking terms with Israel. Any communication had to be expressed through the th a third person and addressed through some imaginary child. Plead with your mother. Just like Hosea, who had been humiliated before his neighbors, whose heart had been twisted into knots, through the philandering of Gomer, so God was so wounded by the unfaithfulness of his bride, his people, he cannot even bring himself to speak to them directly. Now, that's one way to understand verse 2. However, many commentators point out that this word plead at the beginning of verse 2, or rebuke as the NIV has it, has uh, decidedly legal overtones in the original. The New King James translates it, bring charges against your mother, or we could render it, plead my case against your mother. It was the standard 
form of words that was used in ancient Israel for charging somebody with a crime. The second phrase in verse 2, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That's the uh, proper legal form of words in which an action of divorce was brought in those days. Now, if that is what Hosea is saying here, the picture is not of the breakfast table where mom and dad aren't talking. Uh, the picture is that of a divorce court. And these imaginary children are not simply acting as go-betweens for mom and dad. They're being called as witnesses for the prosecution to give evidence against an unfaithful Israel, Yahweh's unfaithful spouse. This is much more serious than the breakdown of a marital, uh, uh, the, the breakdown of uh, the marital relationship in terms of not talking. This, this was uh, a, a divorce that was pending. Divorce proceedings had been initiated between God and Israel. Now, in the rest of the chapter, that legal setting is clearly evident. And I want you to notice three things this morning. The charge that was pressed, the sentence that was passed, and the rehabilitation that was promised. So, first of all, then, the charge that was pressed. In this chapter, we find a threefold charge against Israel. Uh, this is the charge made by God, the plaintiff, the injured party in this domestic tragedy. First of all, Israel had been unfaithful to God. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 2, God had told Hosea to marry a prostitute, a harlot. Strange command for a man of God, for right at the outset of their relationship, she played fast and loose with him. Any number of men enjoyed her favors, and uh, out of her three children, Hosea could really only be sure that he was the father of the first. Then after several years of that farcical relationship, she left him to cohabit with another man. Now, Hosea's tragic domestic situation was a prophetic drama that illustrated God's relationship to Israel. God was a husband to his people. He was bound to them in covenant relationship. They were his bride and he was their husband. But like Gomer, Israel had been unfaithful to God. She repeatedly ran after other gods. And now she was enjoying a prolonged love affair with Baal. Look at verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Notice this. Who gave me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Baal was a fertility god. And the idea behind that religion was that if you could uh, arouse the passions of Baal and his female uh, consort then uh, they would have uh, relations and fertility would come to the world, come to the earth. And so all kinds of immoral practices such as temple prostitution of both sexes, incidentally, uh, even child prostitution were used 
to arouse the passions of these gods, something that was detestable in the eyes of Yahweh. Now, in Israel's case, it wasn't even a case of seduction. She says in verse 5, I will go after my lovers. You notice that? Like a brazen prostitute soliciting clients in the street. She ran after these foreign gods. She was nothing but a little tart throwing herself at anyone who would have her. And her, uh, and her God charges her with this crime of marital unfaithfulness. Israel had been unfaithful to God. Secondly, Israel had been ungrateful to God. Israel was enjoying a time of great economic prosperity under King Jeroboam II. Five centuries earlier, Israel had left Egypt without a bean to her name. During the five centuries that uh, had passed, uh, Israel had gained her liberty from the Egyptian uh, oppressors. They uh, exchanged a wilderness for a land flowing with milk and honey. They had kings to rule over them and defend them. And economically, they prospered greatly. Indeed, never since the days of Solomon had Israel been doing so well on the economic front. Now, Hosea makes it clear that that economic prosperity was from God. He, was, he had provided it all, but they were ungrateful to him. Look at verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. Notice this phrase, which she used for Baal. God had given Israel everything that she needed, everything that she had, and yet she had the effrontery to take what he had given and spend it on Baal. I am the one who gave you the good harvest. I'm the one who provided this trade boom in textiles and sales of precious oil and, and wine. I've given it all to you. But like some ungrateful, wanton prostitute, you've taken those things and given them to some sugar daddy who, who has promised that you'll be better off under him, which they used for Baal. That last line of verse 8 is full of passionate irony. You can almost see the tears and hear the tremble in the voice, which they used for Baal. All I have given her, she has given to Baal. It's almost like a husband who buys uh, something um, very expensive for his, his wife, like a, a, a dress or some piece of jewelry or maybe even a car. But, but the wife uses that dress, that jewelry, that car actually to seduce her lover. She gives it to him. Here in this passage, we see anger and anguish mingled together in this tortured a blend of accusation and appeal. So the charges against Israel, she had been unfaithful with God. She had been ungrateful to God. And she had been forgetful of God. You know, one wonders, did Gomer's ever, thoughts ever uh, turn to Hosea and the children that she left behind? 
Can a mother's tender care cease towards the child she bear? Yes, she may forgetful be, yet will I remember thee. That hymn's based on the words of Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion for the child she bore? Though she may forget me, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It's very unlikely, very unusual, highly unusual that a mother would forget the child that she had. But it does happen. But God will not forget his people. They can forget him, but he'll not forget his people. Look at verse, verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. Do you see that? And forgot me, declares the Lord. She had forgotten her legitimate husband, her God, her master, her husband, her lover. There was no guilt, no remorse, certainly no repentance. She forgot me, declares the Lord. Hosea and God had been jilted in favor of another. And Israel and Gomer didn't give it a second thought. She forgot me. We see that graphically illustrated for us in, in verse 11. Just look up at verse 11. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. The, the, these were feasts that were given by God to remind Israel of God. A bit like the Lord's Supper that's given to remind us of the greatness of His love. But Israel had so corrupted these very things and used them in the worship of Baal rather than the worship of God that they had no relevance in terms of remember, remembering. And let me ask you, have you forgotten God? Has all the material things that God has given you desensitized you to spiritual matters? Are you so focused on the gifts that you've forgotten the giver, so focused on the material, that even those means of grace that God has given to you to remind you of Him, like the Lord's table, like prayer, like preaching, are empty and hollow because your minds are captivated by other things? Are we committing spiritual adultery, not just flirting with the world, but actually pursuing lovers in the world? going after things that we shouldn't go after. But me, she forgot. So in this court hearing, we see the charge that was pressed. Israel had been unfaithful with God, ungrateful to God, and forgetful of God. The second thing I want you to notice is the sentence that was passed. This legal wrangle is unlike any other uh, courtroom drama because the plaintiff, the injured party, is also the judge. God was not only the injured, deserted husband, but also the judge who would pass judgment upon Israel. And so we have God's charges against Israel intermingled with his sentence of Israel. Now, God's punishment fits the crime. 
Baal being a fertility god, promised crops, fertility, and prosperity. They were the, that was the original prosperity teaching. Israel had convinced herself that there would be more material vantage in gallivanting after Baal than there was in following after Yahweh. Uh, look at verse 3. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like parched land and kill her with thirst. God was going to strip her naked and let the surrounding nations ogle at her material bankruptcy. In the ancient Near East, a prostitute was often paraded through the streets so that her shame would be evident to all. God was going to strip Israel and return her to the economic wilderness in which God found her when He brought her out of Egypt. He would turn the, the nation uh, into a wilderness, and He would take away all her prosperity and all her security. Do you see how the punishment fits the crime? What's the, what's the use of a fertility God in the wilderness? God would take fertility away and the uh, prosperity from the land and from the nation, financial security from the people, and He would show them how useless those fertility gods really are. Notice verse uh, 9. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Do you notice how in verse 9, God mimics the first person pronouns of verse 5. Verse 5, um, For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. But God comes and says, it's, it's my grain, it's my wine, it's my wool, and it's my flax. It all comes from me. It didn't come from Baal. It, it didn't come from your own efforts. It come, came from me. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to reduce you to economic ruin. I gave you these things as a token of my love to you as a faithful wife, but now you have deserted me and I'm going to take them back. Look at verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Oh, really? Your lovers? Beal, give these to you? I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Those vineyards and those fig plantations that you thought came on so well when you started to sacrifice to Baal, all of these are going to be ruined. Whole estates and farms will be returned to the forest. And what does grow, the animals will devour what's left. When I'm finished with you, Israel, you're going to be so poor and wretched that you will be like the day I found you when you came out of Egypt. For it was the wilderness from which you had come, and it's the wilderness to which you will return. Now, now why does God do this? Why this particular punishment? 
Why was this going to fall in Israel? Well, you see, the austerity of the wilderness would make Baal lose his relevance. Look at verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Israel would be brought to her senses. She would see that it was God, not Baal, who had provided all these things, all these good things for her. She would see that in praying, in sacrifice, in worshiping Baal, that Baal was useless, that Baal was impotent. And she would be drawn back to seek the true and living God. Now you might say, well, that's not the most romantic reason for an unfaithful wife to return to her legitimate husband. I was better off with the old husband. Scarcely flattering to God's ego to think that Israel was only returning to him and would only return to him out of economic desperation. And yet that says something to us of the grace of God, that he is willing to receive returning sinners even with a self-centered motivation. You know, how many people are actually saved because of a fear of hell and a fear of being left? And the motivation is self-preservation. That's the motivation. But the truth of the matter is, it's God receives sinners back, even with a sense of self-preservation. In that respect, God is very easily pleased. He knows that once the couple are living together, the love can be worked on. After all, it was only the empty stomach of the prodigal that brought him to his senses and brought him back to his father. That's God's sentence, his verdict, his punishment on Israel, economic, economic ruin. The very thing that drove them from God, economic prosperity, would be the opposite of that would be the very thing that would bring them back to God. Now, let me apply this personally. What has driven you from God? Why are you compromising with the world? Why are you carrying on this little love affair with the world? Material prosperity. When things were hard, you felt your need of Him. You felt dependent upon Him, but, but not now. Personal relationships. A friend, an unsavory friend, an unsaved friend, an ungodly friend. Cherished ambition. Your heart has just been entangled in your work, in your business, in your education, or, or just your independence, that you want to be free from moral restraints. You see, God can smash your comfortable little world apart, and He can turn it upside down so that He ultimately uh, drives you back to Himself. Notice the ultimatum in verse 2. Um, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land. Could it be that God is saying to you this morning that you need to put away these things from your heart and from your life? The charge that was pressed, the sentence that was passed, 
the rehabilitation that was promised. Rehabilitation is the inward in today's judicial system as if it's wrong just to punish uh, the criminal for the evil that he has committed. Uh, that's not the position of the Bible. Uh, evil um, must be punished. But in, in this chapter, we have a note of uh, a rehabilitation that God wanted the wayward wandering Israel to return to him. And that his chief reason for returning her to economic ruin was that in the midst of that ruin, that she might return to her legitimate husband. Now look at verses 14 uh, and, and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of Egypt. This wilderness experience would be a catalyst for spiritual change in Israel's relationship with God. In the, the desert, at the height of economic devastation, he would come to her to allure her, to court her, to speak tenderly to her. At the point of utter humiliation, God will come and, and speak uh, tenderly to Israel, literally speak to the heart. It was the standard Hebrew idiom for uh, a romantic exchange between a man and a woman. I will come, says God, in all of your need, and I will whisper sweep nothings in your ear, gently wooing you in order that your love for me might be rekindled. And in verse 15, he says, the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. My Achor was the place where Achan's sin was discovered. You remember the Israelites in going into the promised land had faced a massive defeat at Ai. There was sin in the camp. That sin had to be dealt with. It was a humiliating time. It was a time of trouble. That's what Achor means. It means uh, trouble. It was a time of great trouble. But that valley of Achor become, became a door of hope. Because in that situation, Israel's relationship was put right with God. And they went on then to uh, capture uh, Ahai and the promised land. You will look back, Israel, in years to come at this, this wilderness experience. And you will realize that the punishment that I have sent, this valley of trouble, actually became a door of hope. It marked a new beginning in your relationship with me. Are you in the valley of trouble? Has difficulty and perplexity, anxiety come into your life in a way that you've never experienced it before? Could it be that that valley of trouble is your personal acorn because it becomes a door of hope? Because there in the midst of all your difficulty, God has come to you and spoke tenderly to you. Not angrily, not harshly, but sympathetically and lovingly to rekindle your affections 
to him once more. And notice Israel's response. And there she shall answer in the days, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she first came out of the land of Egypt. It's going to be like our wedding night all over again. It's going to be like a, a new beginning, God says. That valley of trouble is going to become a, a, a door of hope. And that's the, the language that's picked up there in verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. The marriage, I will betroth you uh, to me. But this time it's not going to be like before. It's going to be in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Now that, that word no is, is not just intellectual apprehension. I've mentioned this so many times in the past. It's, it's the, word, uh, the word for intimacy. Adam knew his wife Eve. There was love. There was relationship between them. This, this is the promise of the new covenant. That the, the curse is reversed. That the name of Baal is taken from their mouths. And they shall know the Lord. In those days, Jeremiah says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And they shall all know me. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. There's going to be this relationship. There's going to be this, this marriage that's lasting, that's built upon steadfast love, mercy, righteousness, and justice. And notice how this future prophecy ends. Look at verse 22. Do you remember the, the three names of uh, Hosea's children? Jezreel, which means to scatter. Lo-Rumai, which means no mercy. And Lo-Amai, you are not my people. But look at verse 22. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. Because the name Jezreel just didn't mean to scatter. It meant to plant. It meant to be uh, to sow. That God was going to have a new beginning with His people in the new covenant. And I will have mercy on no mercy. That second child, that little girl who was called no mercy, Luruhama, she's going to be called. She's going to know the mercy of God in her life. And I will say to not my people, which was a reversal of the covenant promise, you are my people. So Hosea is looking forward. He's looking forward to the new covenant. Yes, Israel's going to be led low, but there's going to be a new marriage. There's going to be a new beginning. There's going to be a new relationship in Christ Jesus. And he's going to speak tenderly to them. And that valley of Achor will become the door of hope. And notice how chapter 2 ends. And he shall say, you are my God. Here's the complete reversal, the complete change. That, that he who it was said of, by God, you are not my people, become his people. And the one who is chased after other uh, lovers declares, you are my God. And everything has changed. And there's a complete reversal. 
Yes, God makes this charge against His people. He, he warns them of, of this trouble that's going to come because of their disobedience, but He lifts their eyes to the coming of Christ. When those of whom it was said, you are not my people, are once again His people, and they respond, you, you are my God. And I have to ask you this morning, is He your God? Have you uh, pledged your allegiance to Him? Have you trusted in Him? Yes, you've pledged played fast and loose with his affections. And maybe the trouble that your experience is so that the valley of Achor can become the door of hope. But would you not this morning respond to his overtures of love, his sweet nothings that he's whispering to you and calling you to himself? Would you not respond and say, you know what? You you are my God.